Hello, and welcome to episode 133 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfer Stewart. Today's guest is David Hassel. David is a serial entrepreneur, business columnist, and speaker who believes that when leaders support their employees in becoming their best selves, high engagement, performance, and uncommon loyalty naturally result. As co founder and CEO of 155, David and his team have developed industry leading performance management software that helps leaders and managers drive high performance and build phenomenal cultures via a suite of features, including weekly check ins, OKR tracking, one on ones, and peer appreciation. While at 15.5, David created the science-inspired Best Self-Management Methodology that helps leaders and managers address the hidden factors that stimulate sustainable growth and development. Things like intrinsic motivation, growth mindset, strengths, positivity, and psychological safety in the workplace. David and I talk about all of these ideas behind the Best Self Methodology. We get into behaviors and mindsets and models, all that can help you be the kind of manager you wish you had. Now here's the conversation. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. David, it's such a pleasure to have you today. I have to say that I learned about 15.5 probably like a decade ago, like right when you guys got started and was so excited and have just loved your product and recommended it to so many people. Yeah, I'm just super excited to talk to you. You're, you're one of my like founder stars, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so good to be here. And I love, uh, I really love what you're, what you're doing out in the world. Oh, well, thank you. All right. Well, we're not going to talk about 15.5, even though we probably could. But instead, we're actually going to talk about being an awesome rock star manager. And so yes. why don't you start by telling us about this best self-management stuff that you guys have going on? Yes. And the only little bit about 15.5 I'll say is that you know, we founded the company because I realized and I saw that I believe managers are the linchpin of any organization. And I don't think it's given the due and respect and, and, and whatnot that it really deserves. And so the, the best self-management philosophy is something that we decided to give a name to the way that I believe great managers manage uh, naturally. And some of the things that we were pioneering and innovating and trying to figure out, you know, how to put together all of these really interesting pieces of positive psychology and social science research that help managers not just get like the tasks done and get the work done, because I believe that managers ultimately, they're their results are their team results. And there are a variety of different ways you can get the business results done. And sometimes they leave a wake of, of uh, you know, kind of relational friction and, and, and hurt feelings and things in the wake, or they can actually uplift people and create this amazing virtuous upcycle when managers believe and understand that the way that they get their work best done is by actually supporting their people, not in just the work, but in thriving. And thriving, not I believe, not just even in their work lives, but their whole lives. And so that's that's kind of the view of best self management is that if we take on for ourselves kind of the onus and the responsibility and obligation to support our people and play a role in them being and becoming their best selves, then they're also going to do and and become and, and facilitate and do the best work of their lives and create a real positive uh, environment where just everything works better. And so there's a whole, whole lot of 
uh, principles and things inside of that, both in terms of what people do personally, in terms of you know how do they actually learn, grow, discover their strengths, connect to purpose, be intrinsically motivated, do great work, and then how do they interact interpersonally, which I really believe the manager sets the tone for and can model what we call relational mastery. One of our core values at 15.5 is cultivate relational mastery because the opposite is relational friction, which leads to all sorts of things that are rampant in organizations like drama, politics, resentment, blame, and politics, and the things that really, I think, drag down a company. Well, I could not agree more with the overall premise. So let's dig into some of these specifics because you just talked about yes. a whole bunch of amazing things and we could, we could like go into any of them. Yes. So let's start with this idea of psychological safety because my experience yeah. has been it undergirds everything. So if you don't everything. have psychological safety, you really, you know, everything else is kind of not going to be able to reach its full potential. So tell us how you think about psychological safety. Yeah, I think you're right. You're spot on. It is, it's probably the most important thing. And I'm so glad that, you know, it's become now something a lot of people are talking about. I think it's, it's kind of out in the ethos and people are having conversations about it. I think one thing to understand is that the degree to which psychological safety exists is the degree to which you're going to have open, honest conversations, even when things are going wrong. There's people fall on all sorts of spectrum in terms of their own sense of safety in the world. And sometimes you may be doing all the right things to create psychological safety for somebody, but somebody has had so many bad experiences in their life, whether it's other managers or just their impression of the world of work in general, that they actually don't even feel safe, even if you're doing all the right things. And what's important there is it's the core for trust, right? Trust is built when we can tell the truth with each other without fear of, you know, kind of negative repercussion or harm. Because if I believe that anything I say or something I say may be used against me, there's fear and insecurity and anxiety. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I probably want to hide the truth and just go about my day and, 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 and whatnot. And then ultimately, that's going to lead to bad consequences down the line. And so we want to create an environment where people feel safe to show up and be themselves and share not only the wins, but also the challenges. And, and it's interesting also, because if psychological safety doesn't exist, sometimes people won't even share their wins. They're going to share as little as possible. And so you want to create an environment where people can come to you as a manager and really share anything and that you're, you're still going to hold people accountable, but you're going to do it in a way that's direct and with kindness. And I think the more that you can model your reaction to, especially to bad news and to ha have it understand that, you know, it's not the end of the world, that you're going to bring curiosity, but you're also going to bring accountability, but also curiosity and kindness, the more people are going to open up over time and you're going to end up getting a really positive reputation amongst your direct reports and other people in the organization that, that have people realize they can be safe with you. I mean, first, I love that you talked about even when you're doing the things that are, are all the right things, that still doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is going to feel safe. And I think we forget that sometimes that like there's a whole world of experience that people have outside of our management and our single meeting that are going to impact somebody. And so you might need to find other strategies or other ways to connect with that person to kind of overly invest in a way to, to help them really truly feel the safety that that they need to feel to be able to be their best self there. So I just want to put a fine point on that. And yeah. then the other thing I want to ask about regarding kind of psychological safety is, you know, what are some of those behaviors that 
are like the most, either the most critical or the ones that managers maybe overlook or often forget that can really make all the difference? I think one of the most useful tools I've come across in the last decade is something put out by the Conscious Leadership Group. And I studied with a woman, Diana Chapman, who's one of the co-founders there in a group of other CEOs and and some other uh, venture capitalist investors. And if you go to conscious.is and click on resources, they have a number of these different tools. And the one one I'm going to talk about is this idea of above the line versus below the line. And they basically say that one of the core skills of a conscious leader is being able to identify yourself as whether in any moment, and there's no right or wrong, it's not bad to go below the line versus good to be above the line. It's just what human beings do. But having the skill as a leader or manager to locate yourself, am I above the line or am I below the line? And what that means is when we go below the line, we tend to be in some story or narrative. And sometimes there's an emotional component too that we're gripped by some emotion that's related to fear and something a lot of people may be familiar about called the drama triangle, where the story includes there's a problem, something's wrong, someone's to blame. It might be your direct report. It might even be yourself. And it's got to get fixed. And you already know what the problem is and why it happened. And you're very committed to your story. When we go above the line, we get out of this victim, villain, hero triangle, the drama triangle, and we move into a space of curiosity. Rather than saying life is happening to me and I'm an effect of the, the problems, you now move into what we call like the coach or creator mode, mode where life is happening by me and it comes by taking responsibility. And what happens is what is to be done? The situation may be the same. The results you're getting may not be what you want, but what you do is you're moving into a space where you have more trust and curiosity. So how that might look is if I'm about to go in a meeting with a direct report and I check in with myself and I say, am I below the line about this issue or am I above the line? And, and you know, great, there's a three-minute video you can watch and a great one-page worksheet that'll give you a lot more distinction. But I'll do this check. I'll say, am I below the line or above the line? If I'm below the line and I think this person is wrong and, you know, and I've got to reprimand them and I'm angry, I'm going to come into that meeting with that frame already completely certain about what's going on. And the likely scenario is even if I try to choose my words just perfectly, I'm likely going to put that person on defense. And either that person is going to have whatever their natural reaction is. It might be shut down. It might be arguing. Certainly, there's not going to be any psychological safety there. Now, if I come in and I say, well, wait a minute, let me see if I can shift. And you know, I'm the manager. If we're not getting the results I want, well, what's my part? What's my 100% responsibility? I wonder what might be going on for this person in their personal life. And I walk into that same meeting having kind of maybe detached a little bit from my certainty about my story. I can go in in a space of care and curiosity, even if the same outcome is going to be, I've got to put this person on a performance plan. But what it's going to do is it's going to invite more openness and transparency and a real open, honest dialogue where neither party is in that kind of fight or flight defense mode. And so I think that's one of the most important skills to acquire and one of the hardest things because it takes a lot of practice and it's not something we learn out in the world generally. Well, and it goes to the power of mindset, right? Like in any given moment, our mind can be in a different place and that has kind of ripple ramifications out into how we show up even when we want to say the right things, right? If our head isn't in the right place, our words aren't going to come out the right way. Exactly. That's right. And people can sense that too, right? Of course. All right. So 
let's transition this into the next topic, which is around growth and growth mindset, because I think these are often related, right? When we talk about having yes. investing in someone's growth, right? Automatically there, there's, well, not automatically, but often there's an element of this that I had to give some sort of performance feedback, right? I had to like tell this person that something wasn't going well. And so now we're going to, going to do something about that. We're going to invest in growth. So how do you guys think about growth? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I think the, the concept of mindset and the idea of growth mindset is very important because it really is the prerequisite. Uh, there's, a, there's a quote that's often attributed to Henry Ford. He may or may not have said it, but it, it goes, you know, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right. And I think it really goes to the power of belief because if you believe you can't do something or you believe somebody else is who they are and they're fixed, like a lot of people walk around with the idea that you know, they'll either say it about themselves or others. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Now, if you have that worldview and that mindset, you're just going to believe that people are going to stay the way that they are or that you're going to stay the way you are. And there's not going to be any effort or curiosity or attention going to that you can't even grow and you shut, shut it down before you even start. So the idea of growth mindset is I think as, as leaders and managers, we need to start to look to ourselves first about what are all our limiting beliefs. Now, you got to be careful not to get into fantasy because not everything is possible, right? I'm six feet tall. No matter how much growth mindset I have, I will never be 6'3 in this <laughs> lifetime. And it's important to, you know, to get that. Now, at the same time, I may have a whole load of limiting beliefs about myself that are thwarting my ability to grow because I believe that's just the way that I am. It's fascinating even when you look at some of the research around IQ, and I, I forget the gentleman's name who invented IQ, but he actually believed that IQ was malleable, that your intelligence could improve with uh, attention and growth over time. But the world adopted IQ as a measure of somebody, a fixed measure. It's really fascinating about that. And so even intelligence and personality, it turns out are not fixed traits. Now they're stubborn traits, but they're not fixed traits. They can actually be, be changed and, and evolved. And who, who even knows what you know, intelligence is? I mean, we, we, we have such a narrow band of measurement of how we stack people up in terms of intelligence, whether, whether it's like the SAT scores or anything else, when it turns out there's multiple intelligences that go beyond just kind of intellectual thought. So I, I think it's important, you know, again, to have an orientation that we can grow that our, how we hold our mindset about ourselves and other people will influence what's possible. And then there's the power of believing in someone. And this is the main thing I want to talk about because I think if every manager had realized the power that they have to simply believe in someone, the world would be dramatically different because by putting attention on someone and, and what I call seeing the white space. Now, you might actually do an exercise where you sit down and write, actually take five minutes and just write out something about a particular direct report, about what you see about who they could be and what you see their potential to be. I, see it, I call it seeing the white space, what's not already there. We're really good at seeing what's there and we think that's all there is. But when you start to believe in someone and see the white space and what's possible, it opens up, I think, a real space and opportunity for you to be a support in that person's growth and development, even when they may be having a sense of insecurity about themselves. And we have a great example inside our company. One of my co-founders, Shane Metcalf, will often, he's our chief culture officer, phenomenal human being. He will often get on stage when we're doing things together, and he'll tell the story about how when he joined 15.5 early on, uh, I had founded the company and then brought him on as a co-founder after the fact a little while later. And you know, when he came on, he was feeling, uh, he had this belief internally 
that he had for a long time that he was just a failure in business and wasn't very good and had a lot of like kind of negative self-talk. And now I can't take full responsibility, but I did see something in him. I saw a spark of potential. And anytime he would come to me with this self-doubt, I would just call BS on it. And I would keep holding that vision for him. And he credits that relationship as having unlocked something for him and having him being have been able to step into being his best self. And, you know, it's something I took for granted, but, you know, he keeps telling the story and each time I realize how powerful that is and the places in my life where I've I've successfully done that and other places where I haven't. And I can start to say, you know, it's just a choice. I can choose to believe in the best for people and we can all do that. And by playing that role, we, it's like taking the intellectual concept of mindset and embodying it as belief. What an incredible, like, amazing gift that you gave him to to see his you know his potential and to really hold him to it. And when I think about this growth mindset, right, paired with psychological safety, right, like that's in some ways like a magic elixir, a magic combination. Because yes, right, when you hold someone to these kind of high expectations and you believe that they can get there, right, if in reality, then you don't support them or you, you know, you don't create the psychological safety for them to come to you and need help, right? You could actually make it backfire, right? Like right. they feel like, oh my gosh, I can never live up to your expectations. I'm always going to fail, right? Like that's not a good place. But when that's, that psychological safety is there in combination with the growth mindset, you've kind of created a space where someone can really, you know, become their best self and feel both that, right, that you're holding that vision and you're giving them space to grow into it. That's exactly right. And when you combine that with the principles around delivering truth of kindness, holding that mindset, another real good one we talk about is assuming positive intent. So the thing you tuned into there around, you know, you might have this high expectation, but then you're not actually showing up in a way that's, that's supportive, or maybe you get into more of a, a kind of a blame space when things go wrong, rather than, you know, turning to empathy and curiosity that can, you know, thwart someone or shut them down or feel like they can, they're, they're actually not enough or they, they can't get there. Now, when the results aren't what you think they could be, there is an opportunity to say, okay, well, you know, I can assume they're trying their best. I can assume positive intent. I can bring curiosity and I can say, hey, I know you're, I know you're better than this. I, I know you can do better. And I'm just curious, can we have just an open, honest dialogue about, you know, what's going on? Where do you feel like you're stuck? Do you think you could have done better? And, you know, getting into, again, more curiosity to try to be on that person's team rather than, you know, like be on the same side of the table, not opposite sides, you know, not, not across the table from one another is how I like to think of it. Or now we're all on Zoom. So, you know, whatever the, whatever the comparable <laughs> analogy is. So I want to make sure we have time to touch on some of these other ones too. You just talked a little bit about positivity. Is there anything else about what managers should think? think or say or do to really live in that space of assuming best intent or kind of, you know, approach people and conversations with that curiosity. Anything else that is worth mentioning? Oh, yeah. I mean, you got to be careful not to try to be perfect with all this stuff. You know, I think that uh, human beings are, we're messy in general. You know, we don't always get it right. We get triggered and we have negative reactions and we go below the line and we say the wrong things. And, you know, I think the practice of all of these things, having these ideas of these words, like, you know, like I said, truth of kindness, assume positive intent, these things that we anchor to, we talk about, they're in this realm of what we call cultivating relational mastery inside of 15.5. Having these anchors to come back to and practice is what's most important, not getting it right all the time. 
And I think as we kind of screw up and we learn, because I'm sure, you know, different people as we're having this conversation at different journeys in their, in their uh, life as a manager, you know, we're going to learn from, from the mistakes. I've made loads of mistakes in my life. And, and the more that you can bring self-compassion rather than beating yourself up about it and say, okay, what did I learn from that? And, you know, okay, I didn't get that perfect. The more we're actually going to be able to develop compassion and empathy for others, which is really key. So I think that's an important piece is to, you know, not try to be so perfect, but, you know, try to you know, bring a beginner's mind to all of these things and be committed to the practice and be committed to, you know, showing up each and every day afresh. Well, and that's a, you know, a great reflection of how we have to have a growth mindset about ourselves, right? Like, yes, exactly. It's not just us for our team. It's also us for ourselves. Yeah. And, and one last piece you just reminded me, it's like, we're all going on a best self journey together. You want to be careful as a manager, not to kind of let it go to your head and you're not on some high horse and, you know, getting into some ego trip that you're better and you're guiding everybody else. Not, like you're on your own human journey too. And the more that you can be real and open and vulnerable and honest with your team and say, look, I'm, I'm on this journey alongside of us. I just happen to be leading this team, but we're doing this together. Well, on that note, is there anything that you've seen work well in terms of getting feedback from your team members and how you can improve and how you can grow? Because I know this is something that so many managers struggle with. They're like, I, I know I've asked my team for feedback and they, they won't give me mm-hmm. feedback. Yes. Well, first of all, recognize it's really hard. It's really hard to get over the, the, the psychological safety that is actually required for someone to give you feedback when you are actually in a position of power. I mean, you know, you are their manager. You do have power in your role around whether they're even going to have their job or their livelihood. So you have to recognize that it requires a high degree of psychological safety. And, and I think having a structure to ask and doing it with frequency and then modeling how you react to the feedback and how grateful you are for it you know, sharing authentically why the feedback matters to you, you know, sharing your commitment. Like I'm really committed to being the best manager I can. I'm really committed to, to showing up and, and, and having this be a winning team where, you know, you feel like you're growing and are fulfilled in the process. And I can't see the back of my own head. I'd really appreciate if you would share, honestly, where are the areas where you feel like I'm doing really well? And where are the areas where you feel like I've got room for to improve and, you know, come with it truly open. Like you may feel your own reactions and negative react, emotional reactions to, to feedback that's negative, but, you know, inviting someone to share both the positive and the negative or constructive or however you want to frame it helps with that. It actually puts them at ease because they get to share some of the things that'll get them in rapport because it's mm-hmm. by, by nature, sharing negative or constructive feedback is breaking rapport and it's scary. Uh, and it's certainly scary if you're doing that to someone in power, <laughs> right? Who has the authority to potentially not have, you know, uh, you know, ha- have you working in this organization again. So, so again, it, it all comes back to that psychological safety. And I think the more that you do it and model, model good reactions to it, uh, the more you'll kind of create a snowball effect where that's welcome. All right. Last topic. Let's talk about okay. strengths and yes. the importance of focusing on strengths. So my view on strengths, and and I first came to this work through a group called The Strategic Coach. Dan Sullivan started an organization for entrepreneurs, and they they had seven or eight key strategies for entrepreneurs, one of which was focus on strength, you know, focus on strengths, forget about your weaknesses. And they wrote a book called Unique Ability. 
you probably also heard this terminology of zone of genius, which is another version of it. Uh, and it's actually been talked about in Jim Collins's books around, he calls it the hedgehog concept. But all these things, regardless of the language you're using, there's this idea that we each have kind of two overlapping circles. One is the area where we have natural talents or gifts or proclivities. And, and it might be because it's just the areas we're just endlessly curious about as kids and we got really good at that. Or maybe we actually had challenging uh, situations in our family life or otherwise and we got really good at something else, whatever that is. And then you've got this other area where you know, you're passionate and, and you're really energized by things. And, and where those two things meet, where that kind of those natural kind of gifts or talents intersect with the area of passion, we might call your unique ability or your zone of genius. And what's amazing about it is that that's an area where if you continue to put more and more of your attention, you'll be able to not just produce like kind of market standard results, but that's where you can really find your genius and, and, and be operating in a way that is energizing to you, that you're creating amazing outcomes. There's no ceiling for growth. You can continue to learn, grow, and evolve. And then you, you, know, you also might more often than not find yourself in the flow state, losing track of time, et cetera. The problem with even people even understanding that piece is you have to understand that we each have these areas of strength that are kind of this combination of potential, like this area where I'm just naturally suited to do well in this, plus investment of time to improve. And even at the level of potential where people already have some degree of this developed, we tend in our society to not put a lot of attention on those things because they come naturally or easy to us. And, you know, we're kind of taught in, in, in the Western world that, you know, nothing good comes without hard work. You know, if, if I went to school as a third grader and I got an A plus in one subject and D's and everything else, my parents would probably not be praising me for the A plus. They'd be having a serious conversation about all the D's. But if you look at industry, the person who's got the A plus in one subject and his D and everything else is the rock star. And it turns out that you know, just because that thing's easy to us, we shouldn't dismiss it. And it's really hard to even notice it because it's always been easy to us. We just think it's easy for everybody. So taking tests like StrengthsFinder or the values in it via character strength survey or a, a number of different things, and then asking people, you know, six to 10 people who are close to you, what do you see as my unique ability? What do you see as my zone of genius? You'll be so shocked by the, by the responses you get back and the similarities that people will paint. You're like, I, how did I not even see that? The first step is you have to own that. And so the potential there is that once we know what our strengths are, and then once we choose to own them and say, how do I actually make sure I'm using these strengths in the role that I'm in? How do I make sure I'm in the right role to actually maximize these strengths? And then how do I actually go out and hopefully with the support of my manager, be in practice to continue to evolve that? What the outcome is and what we see, uh, you know, certainly at 15.5 and in other organizations is you have these strengths-based teams where people are having a higher degree of excitement and passion and fulfillment and success in their roles and, and greater outcomes. And uh, again, you know, it comes back to, you know, a lot of people don't even know that they exist. And further, they don't even know where to look because they just think it's, well, everyone can do that. I got to go work on my weaknesses. And as it turns out, the last thing I'll say on that is that, you know, you're, you're going to get far better results by focusing on developing your strengths than you are trying to, you know, kind of, improve your weaknesses. And uh, there's a great little map called the zone of genius map that puts things in four buckets. Any activity that you do is either in the zone of incompetence, the zone of competence, the zone of excellence, or the zone of genius. And what I'm talking about is that zone of genius. 
you know, your weaknesses will fall in the incompetence, the competence, and you're never going to be competitive in business doing something in those areas. So either delegate them or if their hobby is great, just get it handled. The distinction between zone of excellence and zone of genius is very important because a lot of people get stuck in the zone of excellence box and they actually miss out on the top part of their potential. And those are areas you're really, really good and you get social rewards. People tell you you're great and you get financial rewards and, you know, that's where people end up in a, in like a job or a career that they really don't like, but they're really good at and they're missing that passion. And so, you know, that's kind of like the strengths without the passion and the, and the, but the zone of genius is where like really where we try to orient people, which is the combination of those two, which is enlivening your energy, you know, your work gives you energy and ultimately you have the highest potential for, for success and growth in your role. So managers having that framework is really, really powerful because they can guide their people in it. Well, and I, I mean, I love everything you just said, and I want to just share, you know, a personal story on my end, which was I did what you said, and I had asked a bunch of people for like, what do you see as my greatest strengths? And I totally got answers back that I was like, what? Are you sure? Like, that is my, huh? Um, It was really, it was totally surprising. And I'll say that I was stuck in that zone of excellence too for a while, and you know, doing work that like I was very good at, but it really didn't align so well with the things that lit me up and the things that were really the zone of genius. And when I went into coaching, that's when it all kind of fell into place. And Mm -hmm. my husband had been telling me since I was like in my early twenties, that I should be a coach. And I was like, no one is going to hire a 22 year old to be their executive coach. Like it doesn't happen. (laughs) So it took me 15 years to get there. But when we ask the right questions and we take a step back and we really try and figure out like, where is my zone of genius? And where is the zone of genius for each of my team members, right? It may not be so obvious and it might seem like something that doesn't work or can't make sense, but when you're there, it's, it's so powerful. Yes, it is. Yeah. I'm so grateful. I just kind of came across this because someone recommended a book in 2003. Then I did that work and then I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I saw my own growth you know, I don't think even 15.5 would exist without this. And then that paired with Simon Sinek, who I came across in, in 2007 and his work around why, you know, you pair, you take that combination of purpose and why along with zone of genius. And it is just, I mean, that's 80% of the game right there. If you can bring those elements into your team to create a really inspired, inspiring, uplifting, successful, high-performing team. Completely. All right. Well, we are already over time. So quickly, (laughs) to wrap us up, can you tell us about a rock star manager that you worked for and what made this person so fantastic? Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, I graduated college in 1998 and I went to work for a big consulting company. And honestly, I was actually kind of bored to tears by the work itself. And that's, it propelled me into entrepreneurship fairly early. I started my first company when I was 23, 10 months later. And I've really never had a manager since. But I did have a manager, my first manager, John Sternberg. And uh, I was working for a company that's no longer there, American Management Systems in Roseland, New Jersey. And I didn't know much about myself. I was just, I was showing up, I was doing my work, I was committed. But he really saw something. And I wasn't saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm going to leave. But you know, he'd actually given me two raises in the first eight months I was there because he, you know, he wanted to acknowledge the work that I was doing. And there was just something about his appreciation that gave me a sense of increased self-confidence. And he also gave me the book by Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And that really shaped my, you know, I think my love of, you know, continued to shape my love of learning and personal growth and development. 
and gave me some really important tools at a, at a young, young age. So grateful for John. Awesome. And where can people learn more about you, David, and your work? Yes. So you can go to 155.com, 15five.com. If you go to 155.com slash blog, we've got a great blog slash podcast. We have a, a podcast, the best self-management podcast, where Shane, who I mentioned earlier, and myself speak to a lot of people leaders about you know these types of ideas. And, uh, and then you can find me on Twitter, D-H-A-S-S-E-L-L, at D-Hassel on Twitter as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. I did too. This is great. Thank you. As you can probably tell, I am just a huge fan of David and his work. And I'm super grateful to David because as a member bonus, he is providing 50% off of 15.5's From Manager to Leader program, a first-of-its-kind combination of community, self-directed learning, and live events that help take managers and leaders to the next level. I have linked the program in the show notes so you can learn more. But to get that 50% off, you need to be a member of the Modern Manager community. You can sign up at themodernmanager.com slash join. And don't forget, I am running a holiday special right now. So if you sign up before December 31st, 2020, you get to give one month of membership to the person of your choosing at no additional cost to you or them. And whatever level you sign up, that is the level you get to give. So if you sign up for group coaching, you get to give a membership with group coaching. If you sign up with one-on-one coaching, you get to give one-on-one coaching. It's totally up to you. All the links are in the show notes, and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter, and you'll find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.